This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A truce was announced this week between the state of Colorado and a devoutly Christian baker in Lakewood. Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop says it's against his beliefs to make custom cakes for gay couples or to celebrate gender transitions. When Attorney General Phil Weiser announced the agreement, he acknowledged the larger constitutional issues might well be decided down the road. Indeed, there are lots of similar cases in the legal pipeline, says Jim Oleski. He specializes in religion and the law at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon. Jim, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be with you. Let's start with the big picture. How unsettled is this area of the law? It seems like there's a lot the U.S. Supreme Court could still answer. Yeah, so the U.S. Supreme Court in the Masterpiece case last summer left the the big questions unanswered. And so there are cases around the country in a number of courts, some state courts, some federal courts, where the same issues that the court punted on last summer are now being litigated. And we don't have final answers yet on, on any of those questions. What are some of the key questions? So the key questions, at least the ones most closely related to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, involve whether those small businesses that provide services for weddings, so cakes, floral arrangements, if they refuse service to a couple and are charged with violating a a state anti-discrimination law, whether they can claim a constitutional exemption, either because they argue it violates their free exercise of religion to provide equal service, or they argue that they have a free speech right to refuse service. And the, the theory there is that they're sending a message by making an artistic cake or making an artistic floral arrangement. Now, it's interesting you said small businesses. Uh, This fight thus far has not really been with, you know, mega corporations. It's been with someone who sort of hangs a shingle out. Well, yes and no. I mean, remember that one of the most prominent cases in recent years involving a religious liberty claim was the Hobby Lobby case. Oh, right. Very large corporation with many stores around the country. Now, that wasn't an LGBT rights case. That was a case involving the Affordable Care Act and the requirement to provide contraceptive services. But again, you could see, you know, that was based on the religious belief of the owners of Hobby Lobby. So, if owners of a, a similar business or the owners of Hobby Lobby, I don't know their beliefs on this issue, objected to same-sex marriage, could Hobby Lobby refuse to provide goods or services for a same-sex couple? So you could see it coming up with a bigger business, but so far it's been mostly bakeries and florists and innkeepers and wedding photographers. All right, let's look at the cases that are furthest along in the judicial system. Uh, speaking of cakes, there's the business in Oregon known as Sweet Cakes, right? That's right. That case looks very similar to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, with one exception. As you'll recall, the way in which the justices avoided deciding the big issues in Masterpiece is that they found that the commission in Colorado was hostile towards religion, and so they are able to decide it on specific grounds having to do just with the actions of the commission in that case. The case in Oregon, the Sweet Cakes is trying to argue that the same thing is true there, that the the labor commissioner, which oversees civil rights uh, enforcement in Oregon, was biased against them. They're probably going to have a harder time making that claim. So 
it's more likely it could be a vehicle for deciding the bigger issues. And they have a petition pending before the U.S. Supreme Court at this point, right? Yes. So that's the closest one to the court. It's pending before the Supreme Court. The court, you know, only takes a fraction of the cases that people ask it to take. So they could very well turn it away and, and leave the issue for another day. But that's the one that's furthest along at this stage. Now, you also point to Brush and Nib. This is a case out of Arizona that's actually awaiting a decision of that state's high court. What about this one stands out to you? Interestingly, this is one involving a calligrapher. And one of the big issues in in these cases with respect to the free speech issue is where do you draw the line? A lot of the advocates who are arguing that some businesses should get exemptions will say it's not going to apply to every businesses. Caterers won't get exemptions. Hotel owners won't get exemptions. But certain businesses should. And Different advocates have drawn the line in different places. Some say, you know, the cake makers are on the protected side of the line, and and some say they're on the unprotected. With the calligrapher case... And and let me just say, a lot of this has to do with art. Like, is this an art that someone is engaged in? Yeah. Right. And so some are arguing that calligraphy is sort of inherently expressive in a way that baking cakes is not or making floral arrangements is not. This, this argument was also made, you may recall, there was a wedding photography case out of New Mexico. It was actually the first of these cases several years ago. And so there are some very prominent First Amendment scholars who argued against Masterpiece Cake Shop's claim. They said they're not on the expressive side of the line. They're more like, you know, your standard commercial business, but have argued the wedding photographer and the calligrapher, they're on the protected side because those businesses are more inherently expressive. So the court hasn't said it's going to draw that line, but that is one line that is being proposed in these cases. Let's divide businesses into those that are inherently expressive and those that are not. Of course, then you have to decide who's on which side of that line. Fascinating. Now, Arlene's Flowers is the final case we'll talk about out of Washington State, and it's already had some play with the U.S. Supreme Court, hasn't it? It has. That case was pending before the court when it decided Masterpiece. In light of Masterpiece, they sent the case back to the Washington Supreme Court. The Washington Supreme Court had previously ruled in favor of the couple and against the florist. So it's now being briefed before the Washington Supreme Court. And this is a case in which I expect there are going to be lots of what they call friend of the court briefs filed with Washington State's Supreme Court. There's a sense that this might be the case, the one that the Supreme Court takes up ultimately to resolve those issues that were left unresolved in Masterpiece. Now, the makeup of the court has changed since last we spoke. Uh, Justice Kennedy, who had had often been the swing vote on uh, issues of gay rights, uh, was replaced by a more conservative judge, Justice Kavanaugh. How does that change the equation? It puts the focus even more intensely on Chief Justice Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts didn't, in Masterpiece, tip his hand in the way that Justices Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito did. They indicated in their their various concurrences in Masterpiece that they would be likely to rule for the bakery on the bigger issues. Hmm. Chief Justice Roberts didn't join any of those concurrences. He joined the majority, which decided the case on narrow grounds. And so he didn't really give any indication of where he was on the big issues, which I think leaves him the one that most people are going to be looking at when the issue eventually returns to the court. Nice to speak with you. Thanks again, Jim. Wonderful to be with you.
Professor Jim Oleski specializes in religion and the law at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon. We should say that when the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was before the U.S. Supreme Court, he filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, arguing public accommodations laws should trump religious beliefs in that case. Governor Jared Polis wants Colorado to run on renewable energy entirely. He's relying on our next guest to make that a reality. Will Tour is the new head of the Colorado Energy Office, whose mission also includes promoting oil and gas. This office has been something of a political football in recent years. Tour hails from Boulder, where he served six years as mayor. And Will, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good morning, Ryan. One of Governor Polis's first executive orders encourages widespread adoption of electric vehicles. It's not so much about that 100% renewables goal. Why do you think it's important to have more Coloradans driving EVs? So there's a number of reasons. So, you know, Governor Polis ran on the, this bold platform of moving to 100% renewable electricity in order to maximize the benefits that come from switching our electricity generation to zero emission sources, we need to electrify other sectors of the economy. And when it comes to transportation, you know, we're seeing this massive shift that is taking place worldwide in the, in the automobile industry. There's just an enormous opportunity to accelerate that transition towards electric vehicles in a way that will ultimately save consumers hundreds of millions of dollars a year on their fuel bills, will help to actually drive down electricity rates for utility ratepayers, and is one of the largest things that we can do to both help solve our ozone problems in the Denver metro area and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you talk about the cost of fuel. What about the cost of the vehicles themselves, though? So what we're seeing is that the cost increment for electric vehicles is going down over time. It's a very similar trajectory to what we have seen with the cost of wind and solar. So 15 years ago, when Colorado started on the pathway towards deep adoption of renewable energy with the passage of the first renewable portfolio standard, at that time, wind and solar were were more expensive. We really needed that you know, state policy push to start moving forward. What we've seen over that time period is the costs of wind and solar have come down so much that, you know, new wind and solar are not only cost competitive, but are substantially cheaper than operating our legacy coal plants. With electric vehicles, there's a similar trajectory. Almost all of the cost increment of an electric vehicle is associated with the cost of the batteries. And battery costs have come down 80% since 2010. They're continuing on that downward trajectory. And within a few years, probably by about 2025, most analysts project that the battery costs are going to come below $100 per kilowatt hour from you know starting at $1,000 back in 2010. And that's the point at which the upfront cost of the vehicles becomes comparable with the cost of a gasoline vehicle. 2025, Already, 2025, you're saying. Uh, that's right. Okay. And uh, are, do there still remain credits for these types of vehicles? And does the fuel savings over the life of the vehicle uh, even the playing field a bit here? 
So that's right. Already, the total cost of ownership over a lifetime of a vehicle for an electric vehicle is very attractive compared to a gasoline vehicle. Um, and that's not just for smaller vehicles. It's also for larger vehicles. So around the country, for instance, we are seeing transit agencies that are moving to electric buses because their fuel cost savings compared to diesel are so high that over the lifetime of the vehicle, it, it saves them money. Um, we we still do need, I think, tax credits over the, the next few years as we're still in the very early days of the electric vehicle market. Colorado has a $5,000 tax credit for light-duty electric vehicles, and there's actually legislation uh, that is moving through the state house right now uh, that the administration is supporting that will extend that tax credit, although stepping down over time, through 2025 to that point where we, we believe that the vehicles will be um, price competitive. Okay, Will Tour, who's the new head of the Colorado Energy Office under Governor Polis, I want to talk about convenience and perhaps like one's personal relationship with a vehicle and how that might get in the way. I mean, I drive a car with a combustion engine. You can all gasp now. Uh, Part of the reason (laughs) is I love a manual transmission. It's super dorky, but I do. And um, I, I also think of what stands between me and buying an EV is... Uh, I have a tiny garage in a condo, and installing the hardware just seems like a hassle. Um, I also have concerns about the distances that I can drive before I have to fuel up or recharge, rather, an electric vehicle. Will you speak to those concerns? And I I think that they're not exclusive to me. I think that that these are concerns other drivers share. Yeah, well, you know, a couple couple of thoughts there. Mo- I don't know whether you've ever driven an electric vehicle, and I, you know, you may love your manual transmission, but most people who actually drive an electric vehicle end up loving it because you have such great acceleration and so much control. And so, the the biggest predictor of whether somebody buys an electric vehicle is actually whether they've ever been in an EV because people tend to love that driving experience. When it comes to the, you know, the challenges around range and charging, you know, those are very real. The, I think they are becoming less and less of an issue. You know, the range of electric vehicles is getting greater and greater, basically as the cost of batteries come to, comes down. So the first generation of vehicles, you know, you're talking vehicles with a range of 80 to 100 miles between recharge. Yeah. So they worked for local trips, but they they couldn't necessarily be your one vehicle. You know, now we're in an era where, you know, 250 miles is becoming the, the norm. And it's not just for the very high-end vehicles. You know, a vehicle like the Chevrolet Bolt has a basically 245-mile range between between recharge. So we're we're seeing those ranges get longer and longer. I do think that one of the key things that that is going to be necessary to really move towards widespread adoption is to have a much greater availability of charging infrastructure. That both means charging infrastructure along our highways and the energy office has actually just signed a contract with the company ChargePoint to uh, put 33 fast charge stations along the major highway corridors in Colorado. So by June 30th of 2020, 
under our contractual language, we should have fast charging stations that are, you know, basically every 30 to 50 miles along I-25, I-70, and three of our major state highway corridors. That I think will go a long way to assuring that, you know, you can comfortably get anywhere you need to go in Colorado with an electric vehicle. Ever so briefly, talk to me about the infrastructure that has to be installed at a home, just briefly. So for for charging a vehicle at home, it really, you, you've got some options. So I, I have a Toyota Prius Prime. It's a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, so it goes about 30 miles on electricity. So all my local driving is on electricity and then becomes a conventional hybrid for those longer distance trips. So I just plug it right into an outlet and within about three hours, I can recharge just from plugging into an outlet. If about half the people who have EVs, that's, that's all they do. Um, about half of folks install what's known as a level two charger, which allows you to charge the vehicle more quickly at, at home. And level two charger, you know, can, for home use can cost you a thousand dollars ish. And you, you do need typically an electrician to install that. Yeah. Thanks for talking through those brass tacks with me. I think those are really important. I want to step back and get to some more perhaps philosophical questions here. Uh, I, I described as we teased this story that your office could be seen as schizophrenic. Uh, the idea that you have your eyes on electric vehicles, you have your eyes on renewables and climate change, but that part of your mission as well is to promote oil and gas. Um, how do you strike that balance? And how do you navigate the politics of this? So, you know, as a, as a cabinet member, I very much view my mission as helping to implement Governor Polis's agenda on energy. And Governor Polis ran on a platform of moving towards 100% renewable electricity generation. He's done the executive order on zero emission vehicles. In the state of the state speech, he talked about the importance of energy efficiency. So those are the things that, that are really, I think, the have to be at the top of our priority list. We certainly do remain engaged on on other issues. And so I you know going forward I, I think that we will be looking at where there are opportunities to provide a, assistance to increasing energy efficiency and reducing methane emissions in the oil and gas industry. You know, if you look at the big oil and gas reform bill that's moving forward, Indeed. one of the pieces of, of that is setting up for rulemaking at the state air quality control commission to in enhance the rules around reducing emissions so we think that there may be opportunities for the energy office to you know help help provide some technical assistance and programs for the, that type of emission reduction. Let me just and, say that the methane is a particularly a vicious greenhouse gas, particularly powerful. Uh, the oil and gas industry indeed digging in for one of the biggest political fights in recent memory with this Senate Bill 181, this massive reform that'll make health and safety a top priority for state regulators, gives local communities more control, and uh, indeed prompt the industry to monitor and fix methane leaks even more than they have. I guess I want to wrap up with a question of of how you see your role uh, in helping those 
currently in the oil and gas and in the coal economy, finding new work if Governor Paulus has his way and this becomes a state that relies on renewable energy. Is that part of your mandate to help them bridge? So I think that the administration is very interested in in assuring that we make this transition in a way that works for workers and communities across the state. And, you know, the best way to answer that might be by an example of a piece of legislation that the administration is supporting right now. There's a, a bill on what's called securitization. It's basically creating a mechanism to help re- do early retirement of coal plants in a way that will work financially for utilities and for utility ratepayers. But as part of that bill, um, language has been structured that sets aside a portion of the, the funds through securitization for work, worker transition and economic development programs in affected communities where those coal plants were located. So that there will be and, some money for that type of education. Yeah, well, not just for education, but potentially for investment in those communities. And I see, so well, I think I, that's I, an example of the kind of thinking that the administration will be engaged in. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. He's Will Tor, head of the new, uh, the new head rather of the Colorado Energy Office. All right. In our next half hour. The official word came through Twitter Wednesday morning. Hold on to your tote bags. CPR is acquiring Denverite. Reaction to the local news merger was swift and largely positive. This is awesome, tweeted Aaron Blakemore. Congrats, what a power couple, says Kelly Maxwell. And from Darren Malia, this is such great news and great for Denver. But Gabrielle Bryant asked on Twitter, why is this good? That's what we'll answer coming up. How do news consumers benefit from this merger? It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College, how it's gotten so partisan and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The story now of two families merging. Colorado Public Radio is acquiring Denverite, the online news outlet focused on life in the city. So what do news consumers get for this. We're going to ask Kevin Dale, who leads CPR's growing news division. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. And Dave Burdick, who started Denverite just three years ago and quickly grew it into a beloved brand. Hi, Dave. Hi, Ryan. So uh, answer that question for me. How do news consumers benefit, Kevin? Well, the CPR news consumers benefit because we get five really great journalists um, who are who are steeped in their in their beats covering things that our readers and listeners are interested in and uh, um, a built-in audience. So so we're going to have even more coverage um, than we've had in the past. And specifically coverage of the city of Denver. Yeah. And, and you know, there are – we covered lots of stories in Denver and, and we can now lean on the Denverite journalists to do that, which will free up our journalists to do other things. 
Um, so this is all part of our overall expansion plan to just to just grow CPR into a primary news source. And recently, CPR News has added reporters in southern Colorado and on the western slope. Uh, Dave Burdick, how do you answer this question that news consumers benefit from this? You know, um, I think one of the things that, that we're really looking forward to and the Denver journalists are looking forward to is having all the expertise here at CPR that we can kind of learn from. Um, you know, 40 more journalists that we get to bounce cool ideas off of, and also just the stability of being at a, at a really cool organization like CPR. The stability of this. I'll say that private foundations have committed some $350,000 over several years to make this arrangement possible. Kevin, is the idea that this will become self-sustaining? Yeah, I, definitely. I mean, one of the toughest things in today's news climate is to build a new organization um, because you've got a work on the content. And then you also have to think about members. And CPR has all that great administrative infrastructure in the background um, and that we'll be able to operationalize these expenses over time. And the foundation money is going to give us the runway to do that. Dave, how many people on staff at Denverites? Well, now now at CPR News, but uh, coming from Denverites. So we had six people in the in the uh, newsroom. Okay. Yeah. You certainly punched above your weight. I appreciate you saying that. My we... sense is that you had a thousand people <laughs> working on the stories. We throw a lot of punches. I, I want to say that this kind of arrangement is not unprecedented. In New York City, WNYC, which is a public radio station, acquired Gothamist. In Los Angeles, KPCC took over LAist. And at WAMU in Washington, uh, they absorbed DCist. Uh, Dave, it's been 10 years, I'll note, since the Rocky Mountain News closed. Before that, Denver had been a two-newspaper town. How much do you connect Denverite's creation and its success to the vacuum that the Rocky left? You know, the, the Rocky Mountain News means a lot to me and meant a lot to me, but 10 years is a really, really long time in the media landscape. And so I think there are a lot of um, more recent, more immediate things that are that are causing problems for people, including media fragmentation, right? It's hard for people to know which news organizations to trust because there are more of them and there are more ways to get them. You know, social news feeds, I think, can be um, problematic. They're not the best way to maybe learn about your world. So a huge part of what we have to do is help people develop healthy uh, news diets, news habits. And, and, and I think, you know, that's more a, that's more where we've been uh, working and building trust. That's interesting. How Absolutely. do you how do you do that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think we just try to develop a relationship directly with our audience. Um, and one of the ways we do that is we've stressed from the very beginning that if you reply to any of Denverite's free morning newsletters, um, the reply goes to the whole newsroom, and we'd like to answer your question or address your concern or or, or take your news tip. Talk to me about trust, Kevin Dale yeah, from CPR. I, for me, too, it's also about transparency, um, about being honest with your audiences. If you make a mistake, you correct the mistake. Um, you you disclose any conflicts. You avoid conflicts. Um, I think that transparency and then and then building that trust over time is what is what matters. Dave, does Denverite change its focus, or it remains Denver centric? Yeah, it'll be Denver Metro centric for sure. Um, you know, the one change that I think we can look forward to is uh, expanding arts coverage, which is something we've been hoping to do for for a long time. Uh, and I think through this deal and being part of CPR, we're going to get to do that. But otherwise, yeah, it's for people who live, work and play in Denver. Of all of the topics out there, why arts coverage? Why was that a priority? Well, I think there's a void for one thing. I, I mean, you could argue that almost no other area of coverage has been hit as hard by by the economic headwinds facing media. Um, we've lost a lot of uh, arts journalists in this town, and and I think it's time to start bringing that back. So uh, Denverite will have that, but it'll be also be a CPR feature, too. So we're going to have uh, ex- 
expanded arts coverage on both platforms. Would you each tell me about a story that uh, your newsrooms are working on you're really excited about? What are, what are we inheriting here? Dave Burdick? Well, you know, one of the things that Denverite has been obsessed with is inciting more thoughtful citizenship. And so what do we have coming up? A municipal election uh, where turnout is usually extraordinarily low, as is interest. And so one of the things that we're going to do is make sure we cover it right. Explain to people what's happening, why it matters and why their vote counts. Denver is electing a mayor and city council people. Uh, how do you make unengaged people engaged? Well, the first thing to do is to connect it to their lives, explain why city council matters, why their city council person in their district matters and what their interests are and, and how that connects to their block, their house, their family, their workplace, all that stuff. I've really appreciated Denverite's coverage in particular of gentrification and changing neighborhoods. If I can just pass a compliment your way. Uh, you certainly can. can. Thanks is that so okay? much. <laughs> yeah, <I take> it. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Dale, uh, tell me about a story CPR News is working on you'd like to convey. Well, I'm going to give you two. Uh, one is that we have... You're um, my boss. I'm going to allow know. it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, we have a former governor who's uh, just announcing that he's running for president. So we're going to be out on the road um, with Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, we'll be out on the road with Senator Bennett if he gets in the race as well. Um, so that's one. I think we think it's important that CPR provide that coverage. The other one is... Um, uh, we are working on some Columbine-related stories. We're about to come up on the 20th anniversary of uh, the Columbine High School shooting. Right. And um, Andrea Dukakis and Nate Miner are both looking into s the impact of that and, and sort of where we stand now in, uh, in these uh, types of events. I've gotten a sketch of those stories, and I'll say that they are not angles I had ever thought of. So I think these, these will be... Powerful, haunting, and, and perhaps surprising as well. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Dave Burdick is the founder of the online news outlet Denverite, which is now powered by Colorado Public Radio. Kevin Dale is executive editor of CPR News. We should say that Burdick now becomes our managing editor of digital operations. Someday soon, you could bite into a juicy steak that didn't come from a cow. The first lab-grown hamburger was served up in 2013 and cost $300,000. Today, lab-grown meat is more affordable and closer to hitting supermarkets. It's the subject of Disruptors this time, our series about entrepreneurship in Colorado. Pets could be among the first to feast on lab-grown meat... Boulder-based brand Pet Foods plans to use it. Rich Kellerman is the founder. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. I have to say, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but when I hear lab-grown meat, I think, ew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you tried it? Uh, I have not tried it. Okay. Yet. Yeah. We're now, it's, it's strange for someone not to try their own product, right? Yeah, no, it is. But there's uh, there's a period of discovery to get from here to there. And we're at those very early stages. But when uh, you get advanced in this process, I suppose you'll give it a taste test. Oh, do you abso think? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Why would anyone want to buy lab grown meat? Why make it in the first place? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, we feel that there's uh, and, and there are in, in practice a tremendous amount of challenges when it comes to meat production, when it comes to sustainability, animal welfare, and safety of processing all that meat. So for us, we feel there's a better way to more efficiently and responsibly produce these proteins for our pets. 
you are talking about the potential for animal cruelty, I suppose. Absolutely. That's one component of it. One okay. key component of it. And uh, w- what about environmental impacts or factors? Is that playing into this? Absolutely. The uh, I think there was a it was from UCLA a couple of years ago. There was a study that showed that up to thirty percent of all uh, impacts from meat production uh, come from uh, our pets and trying to satiate that demand for their primary nutrition. So this approach that we're taking and that ultimate product that we'll bring to market can make a contribution to reducing some of those impacts. Oh, that's interesting. It's not necessarily for me sitting down and eating a steak dinner, that what we feed cats and dogs is just a huge part of this market. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, is the ick factor the reason you're starting with pets? Uh, <laughs> no. I mean, I also know you're in the pet food business, but I suppose it makes it... Um, Easier to stomach? Yeah, I I suppose. You know, for us, we're creating proteins that are identical to what you might get from a conventional meat that you bought off the shelf or in a conventional bag of of dog food. But in fact, in many ways, it's less icky than the conventional proteins in the meats that you might consume. In In what ways? Well, in the sense that, uh, you know, most uh, chickens, for example, and that's the protein that we're starting from. Uh, for our first product because it's the most consumed meat in the world for people and pets. But chickens uh, today have been engineered and bred so that they grow fast and fat. You know, I think the average life of a chicken and a factory farmer, a conventional farm is four to six weeks. So they grow so quickly that they can't even stand um, just to kind of support the mass that they're growing uh, that, that quickly. So that's not natural. And what we're doing is we're basically using fermentation technologies that have been around for more than half a century to produce, uh, for example, enzymes for cheese manufacture. Um, Back in the day, going back three decades ago, um, cheese was made in part from an enzyme that was harvested from the fourth stomach of a baby calf. And that enzyme help separate the curds and whey so that you can produce the cheese that we've grown to love. Okay. And and so 90% of all cheese that's made in this country is made through that fermented enzyme. Fascinating. And and help me understand how that relates to chicken meat. So we're using the same fundamental process. That enzyme is produced uh, through a microbe like a yeast or a fungal uh, uh, microbe. And how that works is uh, a, a gene from a cow is inserted into that microbe. And through brewing, a brewing process, they're able to get an expression that is identical to the fourth, uh, the, the enzyme that comes from the, 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 uh, the calf stomach. For us, we're taking a biopsy from a chicken. We're taking the gene sequence from uh, its, its muscle. And then basically inserting that into the microbe and using that same process to ultimately harvest identical muscle proteins that will behave in the same way and function in the same way in the body of a a cat or dog. Though it has never been a part of an actual chicken, that meat. It's uh, it, that's true. It, it's never been a part of uh, a physical chicken, but it's derived from that chicken and yeah. how we're sourcing it and how we're going about our process. 
Does it look like a chicken breast? I mean, what would it look like? And I think that's the key distinction between what we're working on and what some of the other companies are on the human food side. For us, we don't need to get that structural piece precise for cat and dog food, right? For, for people, you know, when we look at a, a steak or a hamburger, it has to have that exact mouthfeel, that mm. smell, that taste or texture that it has to be so precise for us to embrace it. For dogs and cats, we just need to harvest something that is nutritionally identical from an amino acid composition so that the, the end product, when we pull it out of that brewer, that fermenter, is more of a baby food consistency. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about meat grown in laboratories. There is a company in Boulder, Bond Pet Foods, that uh, is looking into this, uh, growing chicken in a laboratory that would eventually be fed to pets. I want to say that you're using this fermenting approach. There are different ways. One is to put stem cells in a pool of nutrients. Um, You know, your industry likes to call it clean meat, implying that it's environmentally friendly. But I just want to push back on that. A study out last month says the environmental benefits are unproven and points out that producing meat in a lab requires a lot of energy. You know, that could potentially mean burning fossil fuels. Uh, What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, that's a... I think any company that's in the space needs to, as we optimize our process and start formal production, conduct a complete life cycle analysis to show the comparable impacts of what we're doing compared to conventional meat. But there are so many ways to feed and source that production in the terms of where that energy comes from. And uh, I, I think the 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 one thing to note, since all of the companies in the space are, are relatively early in the process, there's only room to improve efficiencies. While conventional agri- agriculture has pretty much tapped out, like how efficient they can get from a land, water, and energy uh, use standpoint. Okay, so lots of growth potential here, and lots of potential for where you get your energy and how efficient you can be. Is this going to be less expensive than traditional meat? Over time, yes. Over time, but not necessarily yet. No, no. And part of that is, again, just because of uh, the early uh, point in discovery that Bond and a lot of companies are right now in optimizing that process. Yeah, how big is the lab meat industry at this point? Well, nothing's being sold. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? uh, and, and so there, we're still a few years out before we have any real commercial product. But, you know, I, I think the one thing to keep in mind, if you look at the broader food culture, there's a growing interest and demand for new options aside from conventional meat as we know it, both on the plant side and on the cell ag side. Um, so, you know, there's there have been some estimates that I've read that it could be at 2 to $3 billion in the U.S. alone. I'll say that Colorado has a $3.7 billion livestock industry. And you are, I suppose, threatening in the long run to make a dent in that. Uh, the Colorado Livestock Association calls this fake meat and says meat needs feet. A bill to regulate labeling of lab-grown meat recently failed in the statehouse, I'll say. Uh, what kind of pushback do you think you'll get as your industry grows? I mean, I... I think certainly the distrust around GMOs, for instance. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that this is disruptive to uh, you know conventional food systems and the way that uh, business has been done for generations. Um, you know, we see as as we move forward with our venture 
there'd be an opportunity for collaboration uh, with um, these farmers. And, and what would that others. look like? Well, we the feedless and the feedful meat. <laughs> well, we need feedstock to feed our microbes and produce our products. You know, we need sugars. We need plant-based sources to help. For that fermentation. Right, for fermentation. So that needs, uh, that requires a supply chain and farmers who can help and assist with that. And, and I don't have any illusions that, especially for the foreseeable future, that uh, conventional meat will go away. You know, there will be room for both the options that we're producing as well as you know, some of the traditional uh, meat, uh, meat products that are in the market today. I understand that you recently met your source chicken. Is that true? We did, yeah. Our team came out for a lovely 16-hour round-trip drive in two days to a town just north of Wichita, Kansas, where we could meet our chicken that could give us the genetic code that would serve as the foundation for all of our protein. Does the chicken have a name? We are discussing that right okay. now. Right now, the, the going name is Inga because she's Inga. from uh, okay. a, a town called Lindsberg, which is a, a, a Swedish town uh, in, in the heartland. And you tried to pick what, like a genetically superior chicken or what? Yeah. And, and you know, this is something we don't necessarily need to get our genetic sequence from a live chicken. We can work through a vendor who can sequence the genome of a chicken oh. and send us that. But for us, food is so inherently personal to people. So we wanted to, from an education standpoint, get people to understand the process, be as transparent as possible what we're doing. And we chose this chicken to represent that as first start of the process because she comes from a heritage chicken farm. So before I mentioned that the average chicken in a conventional sense lives four to six weeks, this chicken is born and raised the old-fashioned way. She lives four to six years on the farm, and she's raised with the utmost respect. So we thought that symbolically that also would be a great place to start. Inga. 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 Yeah. How long before you you have pet food on shelves in supermarkets or pet stores uh, that is made with lab-grown meat? We're about three to four years out. And part of that is because we still need to optimize that process and protein expression and, of course, work through the FDA and all the regulatory gates. Uh, we are introducing... The FDA is watching this? The FDA is okay. watching this, yes, yes. Um, we will be introducing our first generation product the second uh, half of this year, but that's made with a pure microbe. So think a pure yeast or a pure fungi protein as a dog treat. Just to start educating the public about the beauty of mm. fermented proteins... So that it, it uses the fermenting process, but it doesn't have any sort of piece of like Inga in it. There's no Inga in this okay. version, but that the whole objective is to help educate people. And then when our own ingredients are ready, we'll, we'll introduce that. Rich Kellerman founded Bond Pet Foods in Boulder, which plans to use animal protein made in a lab. We spoke as part of Disruptors, our coverage of Colorado startups. People struggling with addiction who go to the emergency room in Denver can get help in a new way. The goal is not only to keep them alive, it's to get them on the fast track to treatment. Here is CPR health reporter John Daly. 
Veronica Oberg can easily name a pair of turning points in her life. Six years ago, she was living and working in Salt Lake City. I got into a car accident. I was sitting at a red light and got rear-ended by two vehicles, and I broke my back. Oberg, who's now 36, soon got addicted to opioid painkillers. The doctor that I went to had me on Dilaudid, Soma, Xanax, Oxycodone. Later, she began doing clerical work for the same doctor, but he got busted for running a pill mill. She ended up unemployed and turned to the black market to treat her pain. I lost everything in a matter of two months after starting heroin. Heroin addiction sent her into a tailspin. She bounced around the U.S. and ended up living on the streets of Denver. Then, on Halloween last year, turning point number two, she overdosed in a bathroom at Denver Central Library. Paramedics used the overdose reversal drug naloxone to bring her back. They took Oberg to the ER at Denver Health. And it saved my life. That's because the hospital was able to do something for Oberg they couldn't just a few months earlier. Now they could treat her for the overdose in the ER and start her medically assisted drug treatment immediately in a new clinic just down the hall. Today we are here to officially kick off the new space for the treatment on demand services. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock took a tour recently. Before this, a patient like Oberg coming to the ER having overdosed or in withdrawal would get treated for their most serious symptoms, then get a referral to a drug treatment clinic at another location. Jennifer Nagger with Denver Health says that process could take as long as three weeks. I think most would slip through the cracks. I mean, they were big cracks. Nagger, a licensed social worker, helps run the Modest Clinic, which has several patient spaces with treatment chairs and privacy curtains. A therapist encourages patients to enroll on the spot in drug treatment. Nagger says then they can get psychotherapy and medications like buprenorphine that are used to treat substance use disorders. If they're in withdrawal, they can start medication same day. We're paged and within an hour, one of the behavioral health providers, um, one of the licensed therapists presents, meets with the patient and connects them to next day care. Consider these numbers. Last year, Denver Health's emergency department treated more than 900 people who had overdosed or were in withdrawal. Dr. Scott Simpson, medical director for Psychiatric Emergency Services, says since December, the new program has already treated well over 100 patients. Still, he says treating addiction is tricky. But the heart of the disease of addiction is ambivalence. People struggle with whether or not they want to be sober, whether they want to keep using. Having services right there after an overdose helps change that equation for patients. It makes them much more likely to follow through and try to get clean. Simpson says with the new program, patients are showing up for treatment next day at a much higher rate than before, 76 percent. When people begin even contemplating a change, we need to be ready to catch them and help them make that change. Denver is committing more money this year for on-call therapists to help catch patients ready for the change. Denver Health CEO Robin Wittenstein says a variety of entities are pulling together to develop a community-wide response that will save lives. Being able to get into treatment so that you don't overdose and you don't die is really the solution, and that's what this program is going to give people. Back at the Treatment on Demand Clinic, Veronica Oberg marvels at how far she's come. I think it's awesome. Like I'm looking around in this room, and they're making it comfortable, and the people here seem to care, and... When you're an addict on the on the street, nobody cares. You just feel alone. Oberg says she's still in treatment and has now been sober more than 100 days. I 
I'm clean now. I mean, it, it amazes me. I'm happy. Veronica Oberg is now looking to line up housing and trying to find a job. And she says it all happened because she could get help right when she was ready. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.